Version, the New King James Version. And the first scripture reading is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And the next scripture reading is Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Okay, would you, would you join me in reciting these words that are our words about what we mean about being a church of uncommon unity? We are a diverse community brought together by our shared experience of the love of Jesus, our King, by expressing our spiritual gifts and by welcoming each person as a unique bearer of God's image. There are two things that I, I want to do today. First, I want to talk about the biblical vision of diversity. We talked last week about the idea of diversity as it's spoken about in our culture and the way that that good thing of diversity has become an idol in many ways. And then, and so I want to talk about what is the biblical vision of diversity. And then talk about the barriers that we experience of uh, 
that keep us from the unity that God's called us to. Okay, so we're going to talk about a biblical vision for diversity and then talk about the barriers that each of us experience in trying to uh, gain the uncommon unity, to experience the uncommon unity that God has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your creativity. We thank you for your creation. We thank you for making each one of us in your image. We thank you for the ways that your creativity is reflected among the nations. And we thank you for your work in the life of the church to bring us all together, one new humanity in Christ. So Lord, help us to to see and to hold on to the foundations that you have given to us to establish a, a biblically rooted diversity that leads to unity. And that you would help and convict each one of us Uh, for all of the ways that we may contribute to division in our relationships with one another, with our neighbors. We ask that you would show us this by your spirit. Amen. All right. So, foundations for biblical diversity. Three basic foundational truths that are rooted in the biblical story about diversity that leads to unity. The first is the creation story. The second is the church story. And the third is the final story. The creation story, the church story, and the final story. Three foundations for a biblical vision of diversity. First, let's begin with the creation story. That each one of us are created in the image of God. That's where our unity begins. In the image of God, every person who has ever been born, every person, no matter what country they were born in, what skin color they have, every person you have ever talked to, every person that you have ever loved, every person that you have ever cared for, every person that you have ever despised or not liked, was made in the image of God. Every single person bears the image of God. So before we are a part of any ethnic group or biological or sociological category, before all of that, we are bound together in our shared humanity as human beings made in the image of God. There are all sorts of ways that human beings are different. And there are an infinite number of ways that we can categorize and subcategorize ourselves. Different genders, different races, different ethnic backgrounds, different languages and preferences and gifts and skills, abilities, talents, short, tall, hair color, eye color. But underneath all of those differences is this foundational unity that we share, that we are made in the image of God. The fact that I am a white, 44-year-old American male living as a citizen of Fort Wayne, Indiana, all of those things are good parts of who I am. But none of those characteristics give me any ultimate value or worth. What gives me my value and worth is that I am a person made in God's image, created by God with the capacity to know God and to relate to God. Created by God with the capacity to experience sorrow and joy. Created to love God and to love my neighbor. This is the divine stamp that gives every single person their ultimate value and worth. 
And it is the foundational biblical truth about us that binds us together. It's the truth that makes our hearts groan when we hear that over 3,000 people died in Afghanistan in an earthquake this week. It's the foundational truth that makes our heart groan when we see the images of war in Ukraine and in Israel and Gaza. That these are men and women and children made in God's image whose lives have been cut short, hurt, damaged, and destroyed. The Holy Spirit groans with us when we see and hear about these things. God made every person, male and female, in his image. This is the first foundational truth that forms our biblical understanding of what it means to be a diverse group of people who live out unity together. The second story is the church story. One of the foundational um, verses in the, that I've returned to over the last few weeks is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. I would, by the way, encourage you to get your Bibles out today if they're not already. We're going to be looking at a few different um, verses that would be good to have in front of you as we, as we read. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. These are verses that have been very important personally to me as I have learned to have a, what I think is a deeper and richer understanding of what the church is and what we are called to be. This is an important verses in my life about 15 years ago that have really shaped better my understanding of who we are called to be as the church. Paul says this, he says, verse eight, although I am less than the least of all God's people, Grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Verse 10. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he purposed, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about unity and diversity and how the diversity of the church is a reflection of God's plan for the end of all things. And is also a reflection of his manifold wisdom, his beautiful wisdom. And apparently, according to Ephesians 3, 10 through 11, when we gather together in our diversity, especially our ethnic diversities, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that is to say the angels and demons take notice. They see and they watch and something is revealed to them about God and about God's plans and purposes for the world. Why? Why is our unity in the midst of our ethnic diversity so fascinating to the angels and the demons? Why do the angels and demons care? Why do they notice? What is their interest in the fa this fact about the life of the church? Well, to tell this church story, we actually have to go back to Genesis again, to Genesis 11 and 12. Do you remember the story in Genesis 11 of the story of the Tower of Babel? 
In that story, the peoples of the earth make a plan to create their own unity apart from God. They are seeing that they are growing numerous as people and they're beginning to spread out across the earth and they make their own attempt to unify themselves by building a tower that will reach to heaven. And God sees what they're doing in attempting to unify themselves apart from him and God curses them. He curses them by confusing their language. And in Genesis 11, diversity becomes a problem. Through the curse, diversity becomes a problem that human beings ever since have been trying to overcome. Have you ever tried to communicate, Parker, with people who speak a different language than you? It's really, really hard. We have brothers and sisters here who are deaf. We want to communicate to them. We want to be with them. But there's this barrier here of our different languages that we can't just overcome on our own. Because of Babel, Genesis 11 tells us that our diversity becomes a problem. Part of the curse of our fallen world is as a result of, ironically, human beings trying to create unity on their own. And so part of the curse of our fallen world is that diversity becomes a problem rather than an expression of God's beauty and his creativity. That's Genesis 11. You turn the very next page of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12, and we read about God calling a man named Abraham and making promises to him. One of those promises is that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. All the nations that have just been cursed in Genesis chapter 11 and spread throughout the world with different languages are now, God says, going to be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. So all of the nations that have just been cursed are now promised blessing through Abraham. And so when we turn to the story of the church in the New Testament, in the book of Acts and in the letters... In the life of the church, what we see is that God is beginning to reverse the curse of Babel and is fulfilling the promise made to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him. Let me say that again. This is the church story. In the life of the church, God is beginning to reverse the curse of Babel that made diversity a problem and is fulfilling the promise made to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost. On that day, the Holy Spirit is poured out on a gathering of Jesus' followers. Acts chapter 2, let's read what happens. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. 
And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears them in his own native language? On the birthday of the church, God reverses the curse of Babel and the nations begin to experience unity. The languages that divide begin to be overcome and they begin to hear and understand one another. The ancient curse of Babel starts to get reversed. No wonder the angels and the demons start to get interested about what's happening. In the life of the church, God is beginning to reverse the curse at Babel. And not only that, but through the life of the church, God is also beginning to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham that through him, all nations on earth will experience blessing. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9 and then 26 through 29. Paul says this, Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel, the good news in advance to Abraham. And this is the good news in advance. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verses 26 through 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In the life of the church, God is beginning to reverse the effects of the curse of Babel and is fulfilling his promise made to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through him. And that's why the angels and the demons care. It's why they take notice. This is why when the church comes together in our diversity that we are a demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God. This is why when the church comes together in our diversity that we are a foretaste of the heavenly worship that is already happening and will be happening forever and ever. We see in Paul's life that his passion, his passion is to establish multi-ethnic communities of Jesus followers in every major city in the Roman Empire. He believes that he has been given good news that everyone can be made right with God through Jesus. Everyone, Jew or Gentile, can be made right with God through Jesus. And so it is his passion to create communities of believers, establish churches in each city that reflect that reality. Communities of people that are no longer divided because of their ethnicity or their religious background, but communities that gather together under one head, Jesus Christ. That in Jesus, the divisions that exist before us, they are obliterated. Our differences remain, but the divisions that those differences cause are obliterated in Jesus. If you want to understand the book of Acts, if you want to understand Paul, you have to understand how important this was to him. His passion to create a community where solidarity in Christ together transcended all other socio-ethnic divisions that we create. 
In Christ, God is creating a new humanity. That's the church story. That's why the angels and demons care. It's why the angels rejoice and the demons tremble when we come together and we are humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love. The final story. This is the third foundation of our biblical diversity that leads to unity. The final story is it's where we're going. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, I can certainly do no better than simply reading these verses to you. This is a description of the heavenly worship that is now and is to come. Revelation 7, verse 9. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude with no, who no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the front throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Who is there? Every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation standing before the throne, worshiping the Lamb who is Jesus. The final story is the third biblical foundation for our diversity that leads to unity, that we now are seeking to be a reflection of what is to come. This is the three biblical foundations for our diversity that leads to unity. So if this is God's original plan for us, Genesis 1, all made in the image of God— if we as a church are given the Holy Spirit and are are called to be a people who— are different but don't experience division because of that. And if this is where we're going, why don't we experience unity? Why is it so frustrating? Why do we experience so much conflict with one another in the church? Why is that our lived experience in spite of the ideals of these foundations that I've laid out for us? I want to offer a few of them today. The first is pride. The first barrier to unity is pride. Pride is always at the heart of division. Pride is what made the devil the devil, and pride in us is what gives the devil victory in our life and in our relationships today. It is the attitude of the heart that puts ourselves above others and ultimately above God. Pride is what makes us see the faults in our neighbors. We want to be above them. We want to be better than them. And so pride gives us these lenses that make us very good at fault finding, at identifying weaknesses in others. And at the very same time, this lens of pride that we put on keeps us from seeing our own faults, keeps us from seeing our own weaknesses. Psalm 139, that that beautiful psalm um, about the way that God is is with us and he knows our hearts and whether we sit or whether we lie down or whether we travel to the far side of the sea, that God is always with us. At the very end of that psalm, the psalm writer asks God to seek him. 
Lord, you search me and you know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me into the righteous way, into the way everlasting. We are so quick to see the wicked ways of others, so good at fault-finding, so good at seeing the weaknesses in someone else's logic in their argument or their ideology, but we're so blind to ours. And so the psalm writer says, and so much of the wisdom literature in the Bible calls us to self-reflection, to ask God to reveal those ways in me that are out of step with him. And Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're going to remove the speck out of your eye, wouldn't you be better off first to remove the log that's sticking out of your eye? We do have a responsibility to remove the specks out of our brother's eye. But we can only do that well when we have done the work of first looking at our own heart, first looking at the log that we may have in our own eye. Then we can see better, Jesus says, to help remove the speck from our brother's eye. Church, if we're going to be a people who experience uncommon unity here and who are going to overcome this barrier of pride, we need to be very sober-minded about ourselves, to recognize that I am usually the problem. There's a, an old a Negro spiritual that may be familiar to you. It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not the preacher, not the deacon. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my mother, not my father. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not the stranger, not my neighbor. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. What a profoundly simple song. And to think that that song was written and sung by slaves by people who were being wronged in some of the worst ways imaginable, by people who were being unjustly treated, and that in that circumstance that they would gather together on a Sunday morning and say, it's me. I'm the one in need. That's courage. The first barrier to unity is pride, and that pride will only be overcome with an attitude of humility that comes from being aware of how much I am the problem. My friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says this, If my sin appears to me to be in any way smaller or less reprehensible in comparison with the sins of others, then I am not yet recognizing my own sin at all. My sin is of necessity the worst, the most serious, the most objectionable. Christian love, I love this, Christian love will find any number of excuses for the sins of others. Only for my sin is there no excuse whatsoever. That is why my sin is the worst. Those who would serve others in the community must descend all the way down to this depth of humility. The first barrier to our unity is pride. Second is that it's just hard work. <laughs> it just is hard work to be in relationships with people who you're different than and who you disagree with. 
One of the scriptures that we've returned to throughout this series is from Ephesians 4, to be completely humble and gentle, to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be humble, gentle, patient, bear with one another in love. It sounds so nice. It's exactly the way that I want other people to treat me. But they're so hard to treat other people in those ways, right? Like really, when it becomes difficult, when there's conflict, when somebody has harmed us, when they're just really irritating or annoying, it's hard to be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with others in love. It's just hard to do. And sometimes in the life of community, people do real actual damage and harm to us. And it's hard work to be willing to forgive that person. It's hard work to seek reconciliation, especially if that other person is not willing or does not feel like they've done anything wrong. There's just so many obstacles in ourselves and in other people, in our circumstances that keep us from experiencing unity. It's just hard work. It's just hard work. The third is this, tribalism and idolatry. Talked earlier about pride and about how we tend to view ourselves as better than other people. Pride says, I am better than you. Tribalism says, we are better than them. Pride says, I am better than you. Tribalism is another form of that that says, we are better than them. We feel that today in our culture, don't we? We feel the draw to that, to be a part of that. But it's really nothing new. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, I mentioned this last week, the very first conflict that we read in the, New, in the New Testament church is a conflict around tribalism. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the, Gent- the Grecian Jews, the Greek Jews among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. There is a tendency for us to show favoritism and partiality to those who are in our group, to those who are like us, who are in our tribe. That's a natural thing. It is a supernatural thing to live without favoritism and without partiality. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul addresses another form of tribalism in the early church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, as spiritual, but as worldly. You are mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, because you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Why are they worldly? There is jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, and another says, I follow Christ. I follow Paul, I want to be identified with Paul. I follow Apollos, I want to be identified with Apollos. This is tribalism working itself out in the early church. There is something in us that wants to be a part of something special, part of something influential, to have some leader that we can identify with and trust and to follow and to bind ourselves to that person or that movement or that group so that we can feel like we're having an impact on the world or we can feel like we're safe or we can feel like we can overcome the fears that 
encounter us in the world around us. And if a person or a movement becomes more important to us than Christ, we are participating in this tribalism. And our political conversations right now are mostly based on tribalism. We experience that. If you listen to 10 minutes of the radio or, or news, it is, it is about dividing against whatever other group we're afraid of. So pay attention to the media you're consuming. How often is the personality encouraging you to be afraid of some other group or some other person or some ideology or whatever, to be afraid of those things rather than to engage it and to learn to trust that the spirit at work in you will help you to overcome those things. Community is often being built around what we are against rather than what we are for and what we're wanting to tear down rather than what we are wanting to build up. And related to that is idolatry. And I, beginning this sermon series, never thought that idolatry would be something that would come to my mind over these few weeks. Last week, we talked about how the good biblical values of diversity and equity and inclusion have become idols in our culture, have become unhooked from God's given purposes, and have become first things, main things, first order priorities, rather than as second order priorities that help contribute to love and justice in the worship of God. The more I thought about that this week, the more I realized that idolatry really is at the heart of so much of our division. Tribalism, us versus them, we are better than them, is always the result of idolatry, of making a good thing a main thing. Tribes form around idols. Communities form around a person or an idea or a movement that animates us and excites us and very quickly can make that person or that idea or that movement then the main source of our identity, where we find our meaning and our value and our purpose. And we begin to find very slowly sometimes that we begin to identify with that tribe as the first place in our life. When we put second things first, we create division. But when we seek first the kingdom of God, all of these other things will be added to us in God's time and in his way. Let me put a fine point on this for the time being. This will no doubt frustrate some of you, but that's okay. I frustrate you because I love you. I have heard many times online, on social media, and in this church, things like this, that you can't vote for a Democrat and be a Christian. On um, election day in 2020, I had an argument with someone in our church, not here anymore, who tried to convince me that it was a sin to vote for the wrong person. That is making a second thing the main thing. That is tribalism. It is forming a community around something other than Christ, and that promotes and breeds division in the church. As followers of Jesus who believe in certain principles, you can and you should advocate for and debate for all sorts of issues, political, ideological, theological, whatever the case. But there is a tribalism that lurks under our politics in the church in America that makes our political identities a first thing rather than a second thing, and it causes division in the church. 
As I mentioned last week, research is showing frequently right now that churches in America are beginning to sort themselves out post-COVID. And they're sorting themselves out, not based on theological principles or theological convictions. They are being sorted out right now based on political convictions about whether or not the leaders of that church adhere to the political convictions that they have. Those churches will experience some sense of unity, but it will not be an uncommon unity. It will be a very common man-based unity that is not based in the gospel, but is based in something else. And friends, I want to say to you that I believe that the Lord is calling me to shepherd a group of people who knows where our first allegiance lies. It is my hope and prayer that now and in 2024 and beyond that will be a church that is gathered around Jesus and that we learn very well how to listen to one another, how to learn from one another, how to disagree with one another about really important things that have a real impact on justice and injustice in our world. That we would learn to listen and to understand and learn how to disagree but to do so as brothers and sisters in Christ. We cannot mistake our family for the enemy. It's my hope that we will learn to have these conversations and arguments and very real disagreements about things that really do matter as brothers and sisters who have committed together to live out our first allegiance to Christ. Our first thing, our first thing is allegiance to Jesus. All other things come second and serve the first. So today we've talked about these foundations for biblical diversity that leads to unity, that we are all made in the image of God. And we see in the New Testament the story of the church where the early church, especially the Apostle Paul, felt called to establish communities of believers that reflected the reality that every single person can be made right with God through Jesus. And that we are hoping for a time when every tribe, tongue, language, and nation will gather together around the throne. And that those differences and those diversities will be expressed beautifully in unity together. And we know very well in our own hearts, in our own life, in our own relationships, in our own church, the way that pride, the way that just the difficulty of living in unity and the way that tribalism and idolatry get in the way of us experiencing this diversity that leads to unity. But I want to say to you today that whatever frustrations you may experience, whatever feelings of Dismay you may have with things that are happening in your own life, in our church, in our culture. Just want to say to you today that there is a great hope. There is a great hope. Jesus, the son, prayed to the father that you and I would be one just as he and the father are one. And the father always answers the prayers of the son. John 17 My prayer is for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you, Broadway. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity 
to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We are going to gather together around a shared table. Right now, we're going to take communion together. As we receive communion together, we are saying that we believe the good news that Paul preached, that anyone can be made right with God through Jesus. And when we take this communion, this bread and this cup, we are saying that allegiance to Jesus is first, allegiance to any other thing is second. And if those things get in the way, they need to be out of our life unless they can serve that first allegiance. What we're saying today as we come together is that we are a family, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ who have been invited together around one table, that God has served for us in giving us his son, Jesus. And so today, if you believe, if you believe that Jesus is your savior, and if you believe that he has called you by necessity then to be in relationship with every other person in this room, We invite you to take the bread and cup with us today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your communion table, for the way that it is an expression of your work that you have already accomplished, that it is an expression of the unity that you have also already accomplished that we long to see and experience. And so, Lord, today I pray that this bread and this cup would be real food and real drink for us that would make us the body of Christ that you intend for us to be. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.